Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So this week I want to think about leadership. And I'm asking specifically, what kind of leadership do we need if we want to lead impact? Now, I've got a whole chapter in the Impact Culture book on this, and I've suggested that the kind of leadership we need is empathic leadership. Uh, But I want to break this down, Um, and so uh, I'm going to discuss some of the ideas in the the chapter. Uh, But since writing the book, so I finished writing the book um, well over a year ago now, I've been exploring this particular aspect in much more depth. Um, I've got four blogs now, and I'll put a link uh, to the most relevant one um, uh, just uh, in the in the show notes, uh, and I want to to draw on some of the the latest thinking that I've been doing about this, uh, and my own experience uh, as a new leader, in the hope that by the end of this episode and perhaps uh, the next one, I think I'll do at least a couple on this theme, uh, that you'll have a sense of the things that you can do as a leader, uh, but also if you are a follower, uh, you are not in a leadership position. What you can do to become the kind of leader that you crave for without having to change line manager or change jobs uh, to actually lead impact for yourself in your own unique way. So when I think about leadership, uh, when I think most of us think about leadership, we tend to think about autocratic leaders. And I think that the media has something to do with this, because um, if a leader decides something and then changes their mind, they are characterised as weak leaders. Um, uh, If a leader decides they want to deliberate, uh, to uh, get lots of different people's opinions before they make a decision, if they want to delay in order to make time uh, for that deliberation, they are again um, uh, caricatured as indecisive and as a poor leader. Uh, and of course, in reality, uh, we want people to have the humility to realise when they're wrong. And when the evidence suggests that they're wrong, uh, we expect good leaders in reality to change their minds. Um, uh, we expect good leaders to actually think for themselves, to uh, to deliberate, to, to get uh, broad evidence for what they're doing. We don't expect them to just make snap decisions and then stick to them despite the fact that they're clearly wrong. And yet... The, the the media portrays people like that as weak leaders, and we vote in, therefore, uh, whatever country we live in, and I'm not making any political judgment about my own country here, uh, but we vote in, typically, these supposedly strong leaders who are decisive and, um, and who always stick to their guns. <laughs> uh, but is that the kind of leadership that we need if we want to actually achieve change in the world. And uh, I hope that you're with me here. Surely, surely not. <laughs> uh, is that the kind of leader that any of us actually want? And yet those are the things that kind of intrinsically come to mind. When I ask you to think of a leader, uh, most people think about those kinds of people, or at least those kinds of characteristics. 
So if I want a leader that is going to change the world, uh, that is going to lead a team to achieve impact, what are the kind of things that you need? Well, have a think to yourself, what things come to mind? And I guess the easy things that come to mind for me are, well, you need to be inventive, uh, original. Um, if this is a problem that you're trying to solve that nobody's been able to solve before, then that's got to be part of this. Uh, there's got to be some kind of uh, strength of character in here to push through against the odds when everything seems to be going wrong. Um, we're going to want to inspire others to lead us. But still, I, I kind of feel like, yeah, okay, those are kind of some easy answers, but they still lead us to that kind of big leader who leads from the front and inspires others to follow them and pushes through with their great idea, even if it's maybe not quite working and isn't as great an idea as, uh, as they thought kind of thing. Uh, and so I've been thinking about a very different model of leadership, which instead of leading from in front, is about leading from behind, that doesn't get a lot of credit, uh, that is more humble than it is proud, that is about understanding the people in our teams to enable them to achieve their potential and together then collectively for us to all achieve that potential and to achieve something that we can all feel is something that we jointly own. So the kind of leaders that we're thinking about here I would suggest are significantly different to the kind of things that instantly come to mind when we think about leadership. Uh, and so I want you to have a, a think to yourself now about leaders that you have gravitated towards. Uh, and it, it may be a small number. In fact, I was um, doing a, a, a presentation um, to some colleagues in the Netherlands. Um, this was uh, leaders of business schools. It was a leadership session. Uh, so leaders of business schools across Europe. Uh, and I asked them to, uh, to tell me what proportion of leaders uh, have they had that they have truly looked up to that have inspired them. Uh, and uh, the majority of them said, hmm, maybe some, uh, but probably few. Uh, and a few of the people said, actually, none of them. <laughs> and there wasn't a single person who said all of them. And there were very few people who said that most of those leaders that they've had uh, were people that they could really look up to, who really inspired them. And so how would you answer that question? What proportion of leaders have you really felt able to look up to uh, as, as role models, as people who inspire you? <clears throat> And if I were to ask you to visualize a person now in that kind of role, someone who was a role model, whether or not they were actually in a leadership role, uh, it doesn't have to actually be a traditional leader, but someone who was a role model who influenced you for good professionally, who enabled you to achieve things that you did not think would ever have been possible, who supported you, you know, who was your cheerleader, whatever it was, that, that someone who genuinely deeply inspired you and changed who you are today and how you do what you do. So have a think, who, who, who would be someone who fits that category? And, um, and I'm going to suggest whoever that person is, uh, why don't you actually reach out to them and just say, because leaders don't get a lot of positive feedback, <laughs> and just say, look, I was listening to this podcast, someone asked me to uh, reflect and to identify someone who was a real role model, who influenced me, who changed me for good, and I couldn't help but think of you. 
and uh, and here's why. <laughs> and why do you do that as a, an exercise to, to actually break down in words? What is the why for you? Why, why were they so inspiring? Uh, so for me, uh, the, the person that instantly comes to mind is, uh, is Professor Hanifa Shah. Uh, she was Associate Dean for Research at the time at Birmingham City University. And uh, although she wasn't technically my line manager, uh, she was in charge of research for the faculty that I was in. And there was something about Hanifa that was just, yeah, I, I was just drawn to her. Uh, she was busy, but she made time for me, and I looked forward to those meetings. Because in those meetings, yeah, we spoke about strategy and what was going on from her side and how I could help and whatever else. But she spoke to me and saw me. And there was a sense of being deeply seen by her as she was genuinely curious about what I was doing uh, and what impact it might be having. And not just in terms of how that might help her and the faculty, but because she seemed genuinely interested in me and in what I was doing. There was a sense of nurturing that when she found that out, if there was something that was a challenge, that she wanted to know what those challenges were. And she couldn't solve all of those problems, but where she could, then she would connect me with someone or help me to, to work through that challenge. And there was a real sense that she was there behind me, supporting me. If something went wrong, I could go to her. Uh, even if I'd made a mistake and I was actually pretty embarrassed about it and there were going to be consequences, I could go to her and I knew that she would not judge me, uh, that she would see me for the person I am uh, and realise that my heart is in the right place. I just sometimes make mistakes. Uh, there was a humility there that meant that she would never stand in judgment uh, over me. And I did have those kind of conversations with her. Uh, when, uh, when, I was, um, when I was depressed, I went to her and I said, look, I, 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 I've, I've been told to uh, take a bit of time off. Um, I'm not sure that uh, I'm up for actually taking months of time off because I might go crazy. Um, uh, but um, I'm thinking about taking a, a day off and can I go down to, um, to a four-day week? And... Uh, and she, her answer was, well, yeah, of course, you can go down to a full four-day week, but if you are still um, achieving everything that you're meant to achieve, then there's no reason that you should receive less pay for that. Uh, and so I continued to achieve everything that I was meant to achieve, and I did that on full pay. And uh, and she let me take enough time off to uh, to, to get over the worst of it. Um, and that was just, yeah, incredible. Uh, um and I guess the final thing is the, the humility, which was her final act, which was to say, you know what, Mark, you've got this offer to, to go to Newcastle University. Uh, it's in the Russell Group. Uh, you've got all of these resources at your disposal with this particular chair position that you've been offered. Um, and I said to her, look, I, this is the, the best job I've had, Hanifa. I don't want to leave. And yet, I, I know this is an offer of a lifetime, I have to think about it. And she was like, you do not have to think about this, you just have to take the job. Uh, and yeah, we'll be fine uh, without you, uh, but this is, yeah, you will fly. If you can get this uh, and you can build on this, big things will happen. Uh, and she was right. Uh, and I, I took the job with her blessing and it was her who persuaded me ultimately to take the job against her own interests. Um, and that is for me uh, the kind of, uh, I guess, servant leadership uh, model, uh, which is, is one model that, that I've heard uh, spoken about uh, that, uh, that for me inspires me most deeply and has, has influenced me. 
So who is this person for you? And what are their characteristics? Why did they inspire you? Why do you feel drawn to them? What was going on there? Uh, and uh, my next question to you is, well, look at those characteristics and ask yourself, is there at least one of those characteristics that you have in common with them? Where do you find that meeting of minds, that coincidence that, yeah, actually, uh, humility is not something that, that, that I do well. Uh, I, I struggle with insecurity and, uh, and as a result I resort to false pride um, and look at my Google Scholar citations, for example, uh, and just uh, be embarrassing. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, pr pride uh, is, is an issue for me. Humility is not something that comes, uh, that comes naturally. <laughs> Although I, I inadvertently become humble just because of my insecurity sometimes. But uh, but that's that idea of, of connecting, of seeing others, of being curious and delving into the point that I am genuinely caring and interested in exactly what's going for them and want to do anything I can to meet them and help them with, uh, with, what, with, what, they, uh, with what they need at that point. Uh, okay, I can get on with that. Um, I, I can relate to that. Uh, and maybe now this is a foothold for the kind of leader I could be. If I can do that, could I do some of the other things? Well, how did Hanifa uh, demonstrate that humility? How did she cultivate that? Um, and ultimately, what I see uh, in Hanifa is a, a deep sense of authenticity and, uh, and of self-confidence, uh, an intrinsic esteem that she has that she doesn't need others to say that she's great. She doesn't need uh, that sense of false pride when she's feeling low, uh, and she is there able to give of herself um, uh, with humility. So could I cultivate some of that? Uh, what are the things that, uh, that you don't have that your inspirational leader has? And how did they get there? Maybe you can ask them. <laughs> Maybe they might even uh, mentor you uh, or coach you if you're lucky and you ask them, who knows? Uh, but uh, ask yourself how you could build on that one thing you have in common to find more things that you could have in common in future as you grow into that kind of leadership. <clears throat> and my message is that you can be your own inspirational leader. Uh, you can be the kind of leader that you want to be, that you actually crave from others. There are no leaders like that in my life at the moment. Well, maybe I can actually provide some of this stuff for myself and in so doing, provide the kind of leadership for those around me as well who are also looking, craving for this kind of leader. And you don't have to be their line manager. Yeah, you just have to reach out and give of yourself. Um, perhaps just take one person on per year to coach them uh, and to help them. You just have to be one step ahead of them in something that, uh, that they want to grow into and you can provide that. Leadership is not for managers. <laughs> it's for those who want to see change. So if you want to see change, then you need to lead it. Don't wait for someone else to fill the shoes of the leader that you always wanted. Uh, they might come along one day, uh, but instead of waiting for that, see what you can do to become that leader, to provide that leadership for others, and perhaps even to nurture them into their own leadership role so that they can give back to you as well. 
And what we're beginning to talk about here now is this idea of empathic leadership, that we reach out to those around us. We key into what they might need. And with what little time, with what little gold we have in that pot within us to give, we then try to give that to move into this form of leadership. Now, I think the critique of uh, the idea of empathic leadership is that it's a weak form of leadership. Uh, empathy is too nice to be strategic. Um, it's about people-pleasing. Uh, I am constantly just flip-flopping one decision versus another, depending on who's just come into my office and asked for something because I just want to be nice to everyone. <laughs> Uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, um, uh, that's not what we're trying to achieve. Uh, as leaders, we have to be strategic. Uh, we have limited resources at our disposal. Uh, there is uh, often hard decisions that have winners and losers. But as empathic leaders, we understand who the losers might be. We do that work, we deliberate, we think about it, we go and talk to those people, understand their fears, their concerns, to try and understand how we might be able to make a decision that is a win-win for them, or at least that ameliorates the worst negative impacts and enables them to see that we have seen them and that there are reasons why we are still going ahead with this, but we're doing everything we can to minimise its impact on them. And so we don't alienate them. Uh, but instead of weak, I would suggest that we can characterise empathic leadership as wise. Empathy adapts. It adapts to both the strengths and the needs of the people around us so that we can then empower them to be and do their very best work. Who are the people that can do that one thing we need that might achieve impact? How can we work with them to do more of the stuff that they love and fill that role in the team? Whilst protecting others in the team who would be terrified by the prospect of whatever that might be. I don't know, talking to the media. It's not something that I particularly enjoy. Um, it just makes me anxious. But hey, there are other things that I love and maybe that's my strength. And as a leader, I key into that. This is not about a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, and in terms of the needs as well, uh, I see the needs uh, of my team. That, that person uh, who needs to just take a bit of time out, um, uh, have uh, a, bit of a, a bit of slack in, in their agenda for the next few weeks as they're dealing with whatever's going on in their personal life. Uh, and that's what teams are about. Uh, they're going to do the same for you as a leader, as uh, a team member for their other teams when things go wrong in someone else's uh, personal life. Um, uh, the, the skills that we need. Uh, okay, actually, yeah, uh, I can teach you that. Or uh, I can find the resources to put you on a training course. I can find someone who could mentor you with that stuff. Uh, we adapt to the strengths and to the needs. Uh, and as a result, we empower our teams. Now, there's loads of literature on this, um, uh, very little literature on empathic leadership. Maybe that's a, a book I need to write, but um, uh, let's have a look at what we've got out there. Uh, democratic or participatory leadership is one leadership style that you can read about. Uh, and I would argue that empathy is what powers that form of leadership. 
Because if this is about engaging with our teams, with our stakeholders, understanding their hopes, their fears, their strengths, getting them to now engage in the decision-making processes, distributing those leadership uh, roles and powers, uh, and enabling the team to co-produce decisions and jointly take decision uh, decisions. Uh, that is, for me, fundamentally empathic. I need to deeply understand my team, and that whole process enables us to all get to know each other more deeply than ever before, so that we are sure that we are making a decision. Uh, that, uh, if not, we all agree, and, uh, and consensus is, is very often not the outcome of a predatory process. There is that sense of understanding. Uh, yeah, we don't agree with the decision, but we're not going to constantly revisit it and delegitimize it and try and undermine it because we felt like someone else made that decision for us and we disagree and uh, we never had any ownership or buy-in. We see that it was fair. Uh, there was a legitimate process. We were seen, we were heard, uh, we put our views in. Ultimately, a decision was made. I can see the reasons for which that decision was made. I still disagree with it, but I understand why I was heard, I was seen, and you know what? Yeah, that's life. Maybe the next decision goes with me, and I know there is a process that will enable me to have that say again, and there's every chance that it goes my way next time. Another mode of uh, of um, uh, of leadership is coaching leadership, a coaching leadership style, uh, and uh, and this is uh, let's let's be very clear, very different from mentoring. <laughs> I think that um, a lot of people figure, well, I'm the leader, I've been there, I've got the experience, that's why I was made the leader, uh, and so now I'm going to mentor uh, all of my staff. Uh, and actually, the whole process is a bit paternalistic, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, even judgmental in some cases. Uh, because I know the best, uh, and I'll tell you how to do this and to be like me, and I'm going to create lots of mini-me's now. Uh, of course, coaching is about understanding what your teams need, uh, keying into what individuals need, uh, creating individual training plans, work plans, enabling each team member to play to their strengths, but then piecing that all together. Uh, as a leader so that you have teams of people who are all uh, learning uh, on, on their own journeys but fitting together into a team uh, that does its best. Another, uh, I've got four of these, uh, supporting and then delegating. So supporting is the, the third um, literature that you can find. Uh, just Google these and, and you can get loads of resources. Uh, is that the kind of leader that you are? Uh, this idea of leading from behind. Uh, of nurturing your staff, your colleagues, uh, providing the tools, the resources, the capacity, uh, creating the schemes that uh, people can then apply for, uh, uh, creating coaching programs, uh, all of those kinds of things, uh, so that you can then get that second-hand glory of seeing others achieve uh, based on what you enabled. And then finally, delegating. Uh, and uh, delegating leadership um, uh, styles, uh, surprisingly, I still think, uh, are actually powered by empathy. Because uh, if you effectively delegate, then you delegate based on people's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and I'm not going to delegate um, uh, the, the, the media um, 
the, the, the media uh, interviews to the person for whom English is not their first language and actually they struggle with English um, but they are an absolutely incredible scientist uh, and in fact uh, probably the, have, have the greatest attention to detail and the one person I'm going to trust most for the analysis of our project um, but uh, but yeah and I'm not going to give it to the person who suffers from anxiety clearly but huh, here is the person who is eloquent they love this kind of stuff uh, and great, it's going to be hugely motivational for them, so let's delegate this to them. You have to be empathic in order to delegate effectively, rather than just doling out jobs randomly and hoping for the best. That is not delegation. <laughs> uh, that is dumping on people. So, uh, let's uh, dive into the uh, the, the book uh, for, for a moment. Um, I'm not going to read from the book, I'm going to kind of... Uh, riff on a theme I guess. Um, so when you uh, when you get to the book you'll see that I'm suggesting that empathic le leadership has three elements, three kind of pillars. Uh, the first is understanding your priorities and the priorities of those around them, uh, around you. Uh, but understanding those priorities in a way, way deeper way than just understanding what is the most urgent and important thing that you need to put on your to-do list and how do you need to then manage uh, all of the important and urgent things of your team? <laughs> We're going way, way deeper than that. Um, and, uh, and I think maybe next week I'll, I'll do something um, on that and go into that in more depth. Um, uh, also, another podcast episode, I think, we'll do this in, uh, in some more depth, is this idea of bridging expertise. So the idea that actually, as a, as a leader, it's not about the narrowness and depth of my expertise, which is the thing that we tend to value most in academia. Uh, but it is that more generalist expertise that can connect between disciplines uh, and that ability to connect to people uh, and connect agendas, teams, individuals to achieve things that they couldn't otherwise achieve. And that is a really important role, I would argue, that we need if we want to achieve impact. And the third is this idea of service. And that's something that uh, I'm doing some thinking on. I'm not sure if I'm ready to, to do a podcast on this yet. Um, we'll see. Uh, see how I get on in the next, in the next few weeks. <laughs> um, and to, to power this kind of leadership, uh, there are some practical tools. It's not just theoretical stuff. And I'm going to think about this um, in, in the next segments um, of this episode and the next couple of episodes um, and you can read more in the book but we're, we're looking at the kind of tools that you use in participatory and deliberative research uh, so it just happens that I do research in this area so I've got a whole load of tools and, um, and I'm sharing some of those in the book but um, if that's how you want to make decisions you know, really understanding what your teams want maybe then joining your stakeholders with your teams if this is about impact then there's a bunch of really interesting and powerful tools that can help you make better decisions as a leader. This is now not just uh, leadership skills in chairing meetings, this is facilitation skills that manage power dynamics. Uh, this is not your standard project management uh, skills, these are logic models and theories of change that enable you to see the big picture uh, and enable you then to co-produce those impact plans with your stakeholders, not just your teams. And of course, stakeholder analysis is another team to make, another tool to make sure you've got the right people in those processes making the, the right decisions with you. 
Um, and if you're going to invest in training, let's uh, let's let's make sure that as a leader we build the tools, and maybe include compassion training as part of this um, uh, in the training uh, f- program I've got later this year, and also on the podcast. Hopefully, I'll uh, I'll get someone who does compassion training, and we'll get to learn some of the things uh, that she trains in. Um, uh, I'm looking forward to that very very much. So. Empathic leadership, a whole lot of things that we can think about, a model, a framework, uh, uh, and hopefully I've given you a sense of what this might look and feel like, and you've already got a sense, a feeling for what this might be like, as opposed to the traditional models of leadership that we tend to think about. And with this role model in mind, you're hopefully already feeling your way towards the kind of stuff that, uh, that you're thinking about. So how can you take a next step practically to become that kind of leader? And I think that coaching is a really great way of doing this. So um, if you have a look at Times Higher um, Education magazine, just last month I published a, an article there on why every academic needs a coach <laughs> um, uh, and uh, as opposed to a mentor and how this could be transformative. The business world does this um, on a regular basis um, uh, and, uh, and, and I think we could all learn from this. And, uh, and you can do this. I've had coaches throughout my career from an early career researcher. And uh, it's surprising. You reach out to someone, uh, especially someone later in their career, I've found, um, kind of coming up to retirement. And these are people that you would just think would never even answer your email, let alone say yes to, yeah, I, I'd be willing to, to coach or mentor you. Um, and um, and and yet they say yes because they they, they want they want legacy. Uh, that's that's what's going on often when they say yes to this. So who are these people? And could you reach out to someone? Uh, and might they actually say yes without having to pay them anything? <laughs> uh, who is that person? And it's just someone who is one step ahead of you uh, uh, on this journey. And so I've typically had. Uh, a, uh, two coaches, so a professional coach uh, or mentor um, and, uh, and some kind of more kind of personal development or spiritual coach uh, or mentor. And increasingly now I've moved away from mentoring. Uh, that was what I had uh, initially uh, and that was useful. People who've been there, done that, you can tell me how it works and help me with that. Read my papers, my grant applications, help advise on what I should be applying for, that kind of stuff. So I'm not knocking mentoring uh, at all. Uh, But increasingly now, this is about uh, people who can create the kind of safe space in which I can deliberate, think deeply about what I want to achieve as a leader, uh, who can then hold me to account on that uh, and help me to solve my own leadership problems in ways that are authentic to me. So when I got uh, my leadership role, uh, I'm co-director of the Thriving Natural Capital Challenge Centre at Scotland's Rural College. Uh, I also employed myself a coach, uh, and I'm at a point in my career where I can afford to do that. Um, uh, but um, uh, I would beware. I, I got a quote from someone who works in the business world, and they were charging four hundred pounds per session. <laughs> I have a co- I have a, co- a coach that charges fifty pounds per session, um, uh, and uh, and I know that he off- also offers reduced rates um, for people who can't afford it. So um, uh, have a look around, and you can get a very good, experienced coach um, that uh, will not hopefully break the bank and uh, I know someone who is just going to be doing that uh, once a month I know someone else is doing it a couple of times a year Um, and so yeah maybe you can afford to to get yourself a coach 
Uh, and I think what surprised me um, was uh, when I first uh, wor worked with this coach and, um, and it was that kind of goal setting thing. What do you want to achieve out of this? And I looked at my own leadership and what I needed to do in this kind of preparatory year before we actually formally launched the centre. And I realised that my, my weak points were my anxiety and my self-esteem. Uh, and uh, we talked about lots of different things, but I realised, you know what, actually, if I don't get a handle on my anxiety and my self-esteem, uh, then I'm going to fall into the trap of false pride <laughs> and, uh, and doing things that will make me feel good about myself. Uh, I, I'm not going to have the courage I need to speak truth to power when I need to, uh, uh, to protect the interests of my colleagues. And actually, there's a lot of deep work that I need to do. So I'm quite glad that I'm not stepping into a ready-made centre that I get this year to, uh, to, to prepare uh, before we actually launch. And I think this is particularly pertinent because my first ever leadership role was a little bit of a disaster. It didn't entirely go according to plan. Uh, I was, um, to give myself a little bit of self-compassion, uh, uh, technically an early career researcher at the time. I was uh, deputy director of a research centre. And then the director took long-term sick and I got made the director in his stead. And I was completely unprepared for the psychological baggage of people that I'd previously considered friends who suddenly felt compelled to fight me uh, alongside every other authority figure that they'd been fighting all their lives, which they've now projected onto me. <laughs> At least this was my analysis of it uh, after the event. Uh, so nobody paid any attention to anything that I ever suggested, and, and in fact, I had the distinct impression that colleagues opposed my ideas out of principle because I'd been given a leadership position that they felt I didn't deserve. I discovered much later that many of them resented the additional pay and teaching relief that they thought came with the role that they wanted, and the reality was that I actually got neither of those things. Uh, so uh, things kind of went from bad to worse, people stopped turning up to meetings and events, and by the end it was just me and my PA doing everything. <laughs> that was the centre, at least that's how it felt to me anyway. Uh, and then I went to the printer one day and I found an advert for a PA position in the local council. And uh, I realised that uh, even my PA could see the writing on the wall. And I realised, of course, without her, my team of two would be one. And yeah, let's just close this whole thing down. This is clearly not working. Now, I'd assumed that with the director of title in this first job, that people would naturally respect me and follow my lead. And they had done that with the previous director. So it wasn't an entirely um, crazy supposition to have made. But what I learned was that you have to earn the respect of your team. People might fear authority, but they rarely respect it naturally. Instead, I think people more instinctively respect leaders who are quietly comfortable in their own skin, who are vulnerable enough to lead with true authenticity, and hence with a conviction that goes beneath the surface. The, the kind of person that I was describing for me when I talked about Hanifa earlier, and hopefully the kind of person that you've got in mind as well. And it is this journey into authenticity that's forced me to face the uncomfortable reality that behind the confident exterior I present to the world, there is a frightened little boy 
who can be panicked without warning, leaving me blank mid-speech in front of an audience, or making decisions out of fear that I later regret. If I want to be a truly authentic leader, I can't hide that boy anymore. I have to make friends with him. I have to bring him on stage with me and help him realise that he has the courage to face his fears. Now, I've talked openly uh, in previous episodes of this podcast uh, about my own battle with depression over the years, um, and uh, probably the most serious bout of that um, came to me after that first leadership role. And it was a multifactorial thing. It wasn't just that, uh, that leadership role. Uh, there were other things going on at the time as well. Uh, but it's only in the last 18 months or so that I've had the courage to speak about the anxiety that still grips me uh, on a regular basis. Uh, so I've joked about uh, car crash speaking engagements uh, where I was amb ambushed uh, by panic attacks. That was what was actually going on before. Um, I wrote about that in uh, the, uh, the, the, the Research Impact Handbook, in fact. Um, uh, but what I didn't admit was that uh, this is actually uh, a, an anxiety issue that, uh, that has been an ongoing thing. Um, uh, and uh, and so I've learned coping strategies, uh, as, uh, as uh, you will have done if you've ever had this kind of experience as well. So uh, I write my speeches out word for word. So if I've got a panic attack uh, and I go blank, uh, I uh, always know that uh, there is my speech in front of me and I can just read until the, the panic subsides. Um, and uh, I make sure I've got a lectern so that I, uh, I don't have to hold on to the bits of paper with my notes um, or, or the, the, the speech written out word for word because uh, otherwise people will see my hands shaking. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's, it's funny, people think, well, you're a professor. In fact, you've been professor for, I don't know, how many years now? Eight years or something? Surely um, uh, you don't get nerves when you're speaking. And uh, yeah, there's plenty of times when I speak and I don't get nerves, uh, but it's surprising how often um, it, it happens. Um, uh, but uh, the big difference is I'm much better at hiding it now. I, I've got those coping strategies. So this is the challenge. Um, a leader that hides their true self is not fully authentic. Uh, and yet, I don't want to undermine people's confidence in me as a leader or try and make people pity me uh, by talking about this kind of stuff. I don't want to overshare. Um, and yet I know that there is a deeper form of confidence that I can gain. Uh, by trying to actually tackle some of these things um, and being open about where I am in that journey uh, in terms of being myself. Uh, and of course, you can think a lot more clearly when you are not trying to keep your hand over the mouth of a boy who is trying to scream the whole way through your presentation, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. Uh, and so standing there on stage with that little boy next to me, Looking out anxiously over the audience, it is possible, I believe, to speak words of comfort, both to that worried little boy and to the audience. You don't need to worry for me. It's all good. Uh, it's, it's under control. Uh, there is that self-compassion. We all have fears because we are frail and fallible. We are human beings. I'm just like you. You're just like me. Uh, I'm sure you relate to at least one aspect of uh, what I'm talking about uh, in terms of my own struggles as a leader. Uh, 
Uh, and if you still find yourself terrified by some of the things that you have to do as part of your job, whether you're a leader or not, then you are definitely not alone. Uh, and it's not just me. Uh, there are plenty of other people that I speak to, that I've coached and mentored in leadership roles who are frankly terrified by many of the things that they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. It is still possible to lead, despite those fears. And it is possible to lead as you, with that little boy nervously standing right next to you, giving him reassuring nods and smiles as you go. Uh, as you've probably heard, reading through the lines of what I'm talking about here, I've been influenced um, by Brene Brown and uh, her leadership book, um, the name of which escapes me. I'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes so once I finish recording. Um, and, uh, and she's done a lot of work on, uh, on shame and on vulnerability. And, uh, and her argument is that uh, it's only by understanding the places where we feel that deeper sense of shame that we can heal those places uh, and fully inhabit ourselves and become authentic. And her definition of authenticity uh, it is simply about being who we are, not the people that others expect us to be. Uh, very, very simple. Uh, but understanding that, that self-identity, uh, in a way that is secure enough that, you know what, I'm okay. I'm good enough just as me is the first step to being able to be vulnerable enough as a leader, to let others in to see you as the real person. And if we have to create this facade, this exterior, to protect ourselves from the world, from these people who are going to attack us as leaders, and that is almost inevitable, it's going to come to you, as I found in that first, uh, in that first leadership role, then what people see is only that, that exterior. And it is very hard to create an empathic connection uh, with an exterior, with a, a shell. Uh, and so it is about uh, creating uh, that authentic sense of self that is uh, behind the shell enough that people can connect with you, that you can connect with them, that this is a two-way empathic connection so that we can lead in this empathic way, but in ways that are safe enough. And of course, for me, I've done the work. I've done that deep work. I've spent years working on my anxiety. And uh, it was only when I felt that I had dealt with that well enough, with strong enough coping strategies, that I felt able to talk about them. Uh, so uh, ask yourself what you need to do in terms of that deeper work in order to be the authentic leader that you want to be. Now ask yourself, who are the role models that have inspired you? What is that first step you can take to be more like them? How can you be that servant leader that leads from behind? And I'm gonna conclude with a quote from the chapter in my book. Impact needs empathic leaders who lead from behind by empowering those around them. They are often not recognised and they are rarely thanked for what they do. The satisfaction that arises from this approach lies primarily in what they see others being enabled to do as a result of their actions. 
what I've heard some people refer to as second-hand glory. The power in this type of leadership comes from the deep places rather than the high places in this world.